0: This is Radio Ecoshock with Alex Smith.
1: Most of you live in cities. The majority of humans do. Is your city ready for climate disruption? You know it is not. And just planting more trees won't cut it for what is coming. For the past couple of decades, Dr. Brian Stone studied cities in a changing climate from nighttime heat stress through grid failure during heat waves. His 2012 book, The City and the Coming Climate, Climate Change in the Places We Live, won awards. Professor Stone is director of the Urban Climate Lab at Georgia Tech. Now, at this late date in the climate shift, he goes further. Stone's latest book is Radical Adaptation, Transforming Cities for a Climate Changed World. From Atlanta, Brian Stone, welcome back to Radio EcoShock.
0: Thanks so much, Alex. Thrilled to be with you again.
1: Am I right? Are we past the point where a few zoning and bylaw changes will be enough to keep cities going into the future?
0: Yeah, you are correct, and that really was the the driving impetus of the book. Um, I would say, you know, the, the era of conventional climate adaptation has ended. And by that I mean, you know, using our standard approaches to environmental management and hazard mitigation in cities really won't be sufficient to address the level of stress we're seeing, whether it be rising seas and flooding, droughts, wildfire, and extreme heat. Our standard approaches to dealing with these kinds of hazards are not going to be sufficient.
1: You studied the vulnerabilities of cities to increasing extreme heat, and last time we talked, you warned there are not nearly enough cooling centers in America, at least, with generator backup for a grid failure. Can you report more progress or are most of us still exposed to a potential crisis with every hotter summer? It's
0: a, you know, it's a critical question and we we followed up that study we discussed last time, Alex, with uh, an additional study which was trying to actually measure how many people would be at risk of severe heat illness or death in um, American cities and we looked specifically at Phoenix and Atlanta and Detroit. And we found if we if you had a concurrent blackout during a heat wave of historical intensity, so not not a future heat wave, but an actual heat wave we've experienced in the past, that in a city like Phoenix, you would see as many as one percent of the population succumb to heat stroke to 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 uh, to die, and more than half the population would need to go to the hospital. And so you know these are conditions for which we are just not prepared. We're seeing, levels of heat and humidity that we've never seen before and our emergency response protocols just including just the basic number of emergency department beds is is not is not sufficient so i think we are in a new landscape where we will require a different set of strategies to respond to these kinds of challenges
1: back in 2019 you suggested quote the uk is quietly becoming one of the deadliest places on earth for heat waves how can that happen in a green and pleasant land, and why heat waves as hurricanes?
0: Well, yeah, that, that was a paper that was focused on um, how heat and the, the threat of extreme heat is actually quite different than hurricanes. And this is a good example because we have a whole system of responding to established threats like hurricanes that don't translate as well for new kinds of threats in the form of heat and humidity that we've never seen before. And so heat is not, you know, it's not the kind of threat that leads to a lot of property damage. Um, Often we don't have time to evacuate a city. We don't have such an acute warning system for heat. And so we need a a very different set of protocols for dealing with heat. And the most important is to just cool down cities in the advance of extreme heat events. Um, Having cooling centers is critical. We need cooling centers with backup power generation. But we need to have cities that are just cooler to begin with. And that requires um, really substantial changes to the way we build the city and design it. And so there's the kinds of strategies that I'm focused on in the book.
1: And looking at cities in the American East or the United Kingdom and all over Europe, there are more and more extreme rainfall events with flash flooding. We couldn't list all the cities coping with wild flash floods this past year. Social media was peppered with videos of floating cars and homes underwater. Ryan, how much of that is due to overdevelopment and maldevelopment and how much to climate change? Do we know?
0: I don't know that we know as far as the percentage contribution. It would vary from city to city. But it is important to note that the way we have designed our cities has resulted in, you know, what can be characterized in some instances as a machine for flooding. I mean, we really have engineered our cities to divert water rather than capturing it and we divert it to waterways and storm sewer systems that are insufficient for the volume to receding, and that really just contributes to flooding. And so, you know, all of the surface ceiling we have in cities through all the the, uh, the auto-oriented development, the parking lots and the streets, um, is really quite a problem. And so, you know, our traditional modes, what I would say is, is um, a mode of conventional climate adaptation, is to build larger and larger storm sewers, larger diameter pipes, centralized wastewater treatment facilities. These kind of traditional approaches really don't address the root problem here is that we have too much uh, stormwater that's being generated by the city itself. And so in an earlier era of human settlement design, buildings were designed to capture and store water. It was a critical resource that we thought um, should be stored and used on site, whether it's irrigation, drinking water. We still have the capacity to build that way and to retrofit our cities, but that would move us away from these large centralized facilities for dealing with environmental hazards to more dispersed kind of every building, every parcel designed to be responsive to climate change and to its its local environment. So that's a key premise or a key idea in the book is that we need to move towards strategies that are not spatially centralized but are distributed throughout the entire
2: city.
1: Yeah, one of the ideas in your book is that we now have to get used to adaptation all the time everywhere instead of just waiting for a big change and we'll plan it and maybe five years from now we'll do something.
0: You know, again, in in an earlier period of city making, we were much more responsive to our local environments, And so we designed buildings to be responsive to climate conditions, whether it was solar orientation or elevating them to channel the wind in a certain way or shading patterns. We have, with the availability of mechanical air conditioning, um, large public works systems to deal with stormwater or deal with drinking water, we have designed more contemporary cities to be non-responsive to their local environments. And I think we're discovering that these large engineered systems just will not be sufficient to deal with the type of climate stresses we're seeing, and many of the stresses are amplified by the city itself. And so as we are responding over time, we need to be redeveloping our cities to be less a contributor to these stresses than they are now in their current form.
1: The U.S. Census Bureau says approximately 40% of the U.S. population lives within 100 miles of the east or west coasts. In fact, the United Nations says about 40% of the whole world's population lives within 100 kilometers of the coast. That's 62 miles. Humans thrive near oceans. Major cities with millions and millions of people live where rising seas and storm surge can rush in. We're already seeing it. Can we count on building defenses? Is that what is happening, or will it be that we have to retreat from the sea?
0: Well, we will need to retreat. We are retreating. Um, I describe two modes of retreat in the book, um, retreat by disaster or retreat by design. And, um, of course, we should be retreating by design. We've created somewhat of a binary that you're describing. is that do we build adaptive infrastructure or do we retreat? I think that um, frames the problem incorrectly. I think retreat is the um, initial step in adaptation. We usually think of retreat as the last step, whether once all other strategies have failed. I really think we should reframe that as the first step, because what we critically need, whether it's adapting to sea level rise or adapting to flooding in cities that aren't coastal or even adapting to heat, is we need more urban land for the installation of adaptive infrastructure, whether it's, you know, traditional engineered gray infrastructure or green infrastructure. And so what what we seem to be missing is this idea that planned retreat is a process of abandonment as opposed to a process of assembling land for critical infrastructure. And so uh, we do see some successful projects around the world where programs of property acquisitions and buyouts are used to assemble land to then build whether it's a sea wall or a more extensive series of natural coastal wetlands that is much more successful in managing the threat than, you know, a piecemeal buyout process or just constantly rebuilding. And it's this constant rebuilding that is really the mode of adaptation right now in the United States.
1: Well, maybe we live inland high up in Denver or far upstream on the Danube River are those city dwellers going to be okay? Do they just need to prepare for refugees from the coast and the overheated drought zones, or does everybody have to do this?
0: Yeah, everybody has to do this, and this is a, a key argument in the book, is that there are at least three climate-related threats that are that every city is um, confronting, and that is extreme flooding, extreme drought, and extreme heat. Um, this, we will not avoid this by simply retreating from the coast. And if you find yourself in the, uh, you know, in the middle sections of a large landmass, you also will not avoid this. And so if we look at, you know, we have recently seen in the, in the United States, we had our fifth national climate assessment just released a few weeks ago. And it was, it was reporting on, you know, billion dollar disasters and how we've gone from about four of these a year in constant dollars. To we had about 18 of these in 2022, and I'm sure it's true. I know it's true in other parts of the world too. Um, and so, part of the the challenge with this is is that we are not recognizing that the, the major type of disaster in the United States is from extreme rain events. It's not hurricanes at the coast is extreme rain events getting more rainfall in a more narrow window of time than we've ever seen before. When that happens in an urban environment where we have sealed the environment again with um, extensive um, impervious cover, we have accelerated and amplified flooding. And so um, most of the the major events we're seeing today aren't even on uh, in coastal areas. And so really all cities need to be aware of these three threats, flooding, extreme heat, and
1: drought. It seems like whenever we see the news about the fires or the floods, it's the trailer parks that flood first. It's the lower-income people in Paradise, uh, California, who get burned out. Talk to us about the principle of least first. Is that just due to a sense of justice, or is it really necessary?
0: Well, it's really necessary. So the, the idea I have these these four principles that I believe are a component part of, of radical adaptation. And the first one is that radical adaptation needs to be dispersive. We need to be focused on not just these centralized responses, but responding everywhere, all the time, as you as you mentioned. And the second is that um, is this 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 principle of least first is that these communities that are most vulnerable to climate stresses. Are, need to be the first communities that we're working with, whether it's um, investing in the quality of the housing to make it more resilient or to assist people moving out of hazard zones or to install adaptive infrastructure. And this, it sounds like a simple point that these, these most vulnerable communities should be our priority. What we see in the early responses to climate adaptation is actually quite the opposite. It tends to be the more affluent communities that are giving, that are getting the governmental assistance. And that is really um, an inversion of the way we should think about this. The other variable to consider is that most of these, you know, historically marginalized communities, particularly in the United States, are in these high hazard zones. And so these are the lowlands that, that flood the most commonly, or the most denuded areas that lack natural tree canopy and other vegetation, and, and become the hottest zones in the city. These are the places we need to be investing in first. And so that this, this second principle of the, the of least first critical, I think, to yes addressing climate justice, but also most effectively targeting the areas that are gonna that are gonna be most stressed by climate shocks.
1: And then most North American cities and suburbs were built around the car. We have houses in cul-de-sacs with nothing and walking distance, no public transportation. An article in Newsweek, January 15th, 2024, says Americans can no longer afford their cars. New cars cost what a house did. Used cars prices are insane. Insurance is high up there. More and more working people can't afford a car and they can't make a living without one. Are people going to walk away from all those homes during a housing shortage? That doesn't seem likely. What can be done?
0: This is really an idea at the core of the book, that if we're simply focused on adaptation as a response to climate change, it will probably fail politically and physically as a set of strategies. We really need to understand climate adaptation as a response to numerous kind of critical crises in the city today, and one of those crises is affordability, as you mentioned. We have an affordable housing crisis in cities, and so in responding to climate change, we can address both of these agendas. We have a tremendous amount of underutilized space in cities, impervious surface parking lots, on-street parking The my neighborhood or my part of the world, Atlanta, we have really extensive suburban shopping malls that have been largely abandoned. These spaces can be redeveloped to be more conducive to affordability, but at the same time less contributing to stormwater flows, extensive heat, and the amplifying factors of the city. And So we really need to combine these two strategies. There's been some very innovative projects. Typically, in the uh, the Netherlands, has always been a leader in this context. But with amphibious housing, the notion that some of these urban waterways that have been industrial docklands are actually quite suitable for housing that either is physically floating on the surface of the water or capable of rising up when floodwaters come in. That is an opportunity for using underutilized space for small-scale, more affordable housing. Housing that's very uh, well-situated for renewable power generation um, and other modes of transportation within dense cities. This is a, a, a combining of these two strategies focused on both adaptation and affordability that I think will make these types of strategies more appealing to communities as we move forward.
2: Check out the Radio Ecoshock website. We're at ecoshock.org.
1: You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is Professor Brian Stone from the Urban Climate Lab at Georgia Tech. We are talking about radical adaptation for cities in a time of climate extremes. In recent months, winter is hotter than normal throughout much of the northern hemisphere with crazy records all over. It's very strange here. No snow in Canada in January. People in South America, though, they're frying in the heat with high humidity and hardly any relief at night. Big cities there, as in Africa, are surrounded by slums and uncontrolled growth. Is hope for radical urban transformation just for the developed world where we can afford it?
0: No, I don't think at all. And I don't think so at all. And I think, you know, some of these communities, these informal settlements, have some of the most compelling adaptive features that the, the global north can learn from. I mean, this this notion of amphibious housing is actually a a very traditional practice that we see in many parts of the world. Vietnam is one example of floating houseboats, but also this amphibious housing that can rise up when floodwaters come in. That's That's been a long-term practice in various parts of the world that more industrialized cities can learn from. And, again, I think these are the very places that we need to be intervening first. And so most of the principles and strategies that I explore in the book are pretty low-tech strategies. They rely, again, on collection of rainwater on site. They're more reliance on the energy we're given from the sun to power our buildings and to warm them in the winter, the use of collective resources to, to manage these stresses and promote greater community amenities. Another potential benefit of planned retreat is to, once we acquire land for adaptive infrastructure, to also make these formerly occupied spaces available for public use. This is another example where the the Dutch have been quite innovative in acquiring land to uh, allow for more natural flooding of their riverways, but then to also repurpose that land in periods where it's not flooding for community amenities, like parks and amphitheaters and extensive biking networks. As we move toward greater retreat, which I think will be unavoidable everywhere in the world, we need to be also thinking about these amenities that communities need and these opportunities for affordable housing.
1: I wonder if cities can change. Back in 2009, I broadcast from a Resilient Cities Conference in Vancouver. The Eco City World Summit was in Montreal in 2010. And then we have transition towns. That movement seems quieter, though it is continuing. Most cities seem frozen in the past. Brian, what will it take to finally bring on radical adaptation?
0: Well, cities are always changing. They're changing in small ways. They are forever being redeveloped piece by piece. And so I think part of the problem of thinking about large-scale Engineered strategies for adaptation is that it loses sight of this kind of organic ongoing change process that's always happening in cities. For city government, the way we interact with this process of change is through zoning codes and ordinances that essentially regulate how we can build, but then how we can change our structures over time. And so by changing the, these basic Ordinances within cities that, that constrain our building process, we can change the fundamental DNA that drives urban design. And there's some great examples of this from around the world. What's known as the uh, Seattle Green Factor in Seattle, Washington sets a minimum amount of green cover that every parcel based on zoning class must achieve. And so anytime you build a new, you, ha- you must meet that standard. You can meet it in different ways. You can have more tree cover. You can have a green roof, you can have a vertical garden, different ways of achieving the standard, but whether you're building a new or renovating or putting a new roof on your structure, anytime you have to secure a permit to modify that property, you have to bring it up to code. And our code should have minimum green cover standards, but also standards that are regulating how much stormwater you generate, how much heat the, the building is producing, all of these impacts can be addressed through our building codes, um, but we rarely leverage that as an uh, an adaptive strategy.
1: Well, in many countries, cities are actually taking the lead in adaptation, and according to your book, that's really the way it should be. The more localized you get, the better it's going to work. I think that's true, and it's it's
0: true because of this this constant process of of urban change that I'm describing. These cities are not going to change overnight, but they are always changing. And so by leveraging that, we can reduce some of the the contribution of the city itself to increased temperatures and flooding and drought. Of course, having a strong national government involved is also critical. And so we find ourselves in the United States where we are slowly starting to pass some federal legislation. But I'd say most of these efforts to date, while very, you know, positive on the side of reducing emissions, are not fundamentally Position us very well to adapt to the changes that we that are already here and that are in the pipeline for us.
1: Can you give us more examples of steps that actually are being taken, either in America or, or Europe or anywhere, that give us clues about what this radical adaptation is heading for?
0: Yeah, I'll give. I'll give you an example from your own country of uh, Canada. One of the reasons I titled the book "Radical Adaptation" is it's drawn from the idea of radical planning theory, and radical planning is a set of ideas about how, in some instances, it's the governing institutions and protocols themselves that impede positive societal responses to challenges. These were ideas that were born of the civil unrest in the United States in the the 1960s, but we have more contemporary examples, um, Black Lives Matter, the Occupy Wall Street movement in the United States. These were moves that fundamentally were suggesting that it was the governing institutions that were um, most at fault for whatever the, the, the mode of societal distress was. In the context of radical adaptation for my uh, book, I'm, I'm not suggesting that we need to have extreme responses per se or that we need to work outside of government, but we do need to recognize when governing institutions themselves are a significant impediment to adapting to climate stress. Um, a very clear example in the United States is the uh, Federal Emergency Management Agency, in our approach to dealing with seal of arise and repetitive flooding events. Um, we have national policies that provide funding for a constant pattern of rebuilding in very high hazard zones that we know will flood again, that we know will be subject to hurricanes again. And whether or not you're carrying flood insurance, the federal government is there to assist you re- in rebuilding time and time again. So that is not a positive way to move into um, climate adaptation. A, a recent exception we see to this approach, that is the approach of many national governments. In Quebec, in the aftermath of flooding events in 2017 and 2019 in the city of uh, Gatineau, there on the Ottawa River, a policy change was made to enable either property buyouts for parcels that have flooded, many of these flooded in, in both of these events, both in 2017 and 2019. So they really, many of them were not even fully restored and had flooded again. And so the provincial government said we will, we will either buy out your property or assist you in rebuilding, but only one time. And so um, you have the ability to rebuild your property in a hazard zone one time, and in the future there will be no more, you know, national assistance. And that really changes the calculus for a property owner, whether they want to accept a buyout, Um, because if they know that there will be no more governmental support moving forward, that would devalue their property. That's that's recorded publicly as part of the deed. And so any future property owner would not be eligible for federal disaster assistance. That, I think, is a very smart policy. It doesn't force people to sell, but it changes the, the range of incentives, and so I'd like to see that more widely adopted.
1: When threatened by new situations, and this is a new situation, humans often retreat toward their vision of the past. Uh, Even folks who lost their homes during storms or fires uh, try to rebuild the same fragile system. There's a growing consensus the real threat is less climate change and more inability to achieve human change. Are you optimistic your research and books could be put to use in time? I am optimistic.
0: I think there, you know, for those of us who have been doing this for a long time, Alex, you're certainly one of those individuals, and I am too, we haven't seen the level of responsiveness in the general public, at least in in North America, that we do now. You know, it's really undeniable not only that climate change is happening, but it's having impacts on our lives right now. And, you know, with every passing summer, we're getting closer to levels of heat and humidity in cities where it just will not be safe to go outside for anyone of any level of fitness. And so, you know, that's very constraining on, you know, our quality of life and also has, you know, some pretty significant economic implications, particularly if you're a younger person. So I do think there's an appetite for uh, a more kind of muscular approach to thinking about climate education within the government, but also within within community institutions. Um, so I think there's an update there. But like I said before, we should not think of this simply as a climate adaptation initiative, but as a set of strategies that can achieve many objectives that we have in cities. Um, one of those is affordable housing. We, we mentioned that. Greater engagement with our communities and neighbors um, is something that I think um, many of us are hungry for, And then we have a a lot of long-standing ecological challenges and problems. We're seeing a lot of studies coming out now suggesting that our drinking water simply isn't safe with these forever chemicals. A general suite of strategies simply to make our cities more ecologically responsive, to look more like the ecosystems that they exist within, can go a long way to addressing many of uh, these long-standing challenges while also reducing the impacts of climate change.
1: Your new book is Radical Adaptation, Transforming Cities for a Climate-Changed World. Who is your target audience, and who can work with the tools and options you offer? Well, it's,
0: it's, it's planners, government officials, but, but I've really tried to design the book to speak to any, any reader that's interested in climate change and particularly interested in how climate change is playing out in cities. Um, as we've mentioned, cities themselves are um, amplifying really all of the effects of climate change. And and the most direct route for us to be impacted within cities is probably not a hurricane, but, but some kind of a failure of critical urban infrastructure. We have our electrical grid systems that are failing with rising frequency. In the United States, over a recent five-year period, we've seen the number of major blackout events more than double um, over a very short period of time. And so, you know, these kinds of critical infrastructure failures are happening at the moment that the infrastructure is most critical to us. So in the, in the midst of a heat wave, we have such demand on the electrical grid that we are losing our access to mechanical cooling when we most need it. That is something that it's, it's very likely that most everybody in your audience will, will experience, has recently experienced or will experience. And as we're approaching critical levels of heat and humidity for just the human body, these kinds of mechanical systems are life support systems for us. Our affluence won't help us deal with this if we find ourselves in a situation where critical infrastructure is failing. You know, in, in our basic storm sewer systems, is, is the same type of issue. We're seeing major flooding events in cities, lots of um, property damage, and some loss of life because the city itself is contributing to flash floods of events due to the fact that we have an engineered storm sewer system that is no longer able to cope with the volumes of water.
1: From the School of City and Regional Planning at Georgia Institute of Technology, we have been speaking with Dr. Brian Stone. His new book tells us where we are, Radical Adaptation, Transforming Cities for a Climate-Changed World, To find out more, you can use links in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.org. Brian Stone, thank you so much for talking with us again.
0: It's been a great pleasure. Thanks so much.
1: You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org.
2: This is Radio Ecoshock with your host, Alex Smith.
1: In the hottest times of human history... Can we have industrial civilization and a livable climate? Can we make things like steel, cement, and chemicals without adding greenhouse gases? The products you buy and the way you live depend on getting the right answers. With two master's degrees in the environment, engineering, and planning, Jeffrey Rissman is senior director for industry at the American nonprofit called Energy Innovation. Following earlier books and guides, Reisman fully lays out future viable technologies in his upcoming book, Zero Carbon Industry, Transformative Technologies and Policies to Achieve Sustainable Prosperity. Is it real? Can it happen? From Energy Innovation, Jeffrey Reisman, welcome to Radio EcoShock.
2: Hi, Alex. Thank you so much. Glad to be here.
1: Well, this is a huge new book published by Columbia University Press. It covers almost every pathway to net zero production. We couldn't cover it in 20 interviews. So let's start with a couple of basics our listeners use every day, steel and cement. And I want to begin with a headline familiar to our UK listeners, the Indian-owned conglomerate TATA, is closing a coal-fired steel mill in the south of Wales. And Port Talbot's been a mill town for generations, and now they're going to lose 3,000 decently paid jobs. The UK Conservative government is funding that change from coal power to electric arc furnaces with half a billion pounds of taxpayers' money in a four-year conversion. It will cut the UK's overall greenhouse gas emissions about 1.5%. Jeffrey, where do you see this move by Tata in the larger story of steel production without fossil fuels?
2: The steel industry will, uh, is starting to undergo a transformation to adopt cleaner processes. Now, there's uh, electric arc furnaces you mentioned, which are today used to recycle steel, scrap steel, to make new steel. But there's also new ways to create primary steel from iron ore without greenhouse gases. Uh, For example,
1: using clean hydrogen
2: as a way to convert the ore into metallic iron instead of coal.
1: But we don't have enough clean hydrogen at the moment, and as I understand it, natural gas is still needed for part of this uh, electric arc furnace.
2: So scaling up clean hydrogen will be important for decarbonizing the primary steel industry. To some degree, you know, the electric arc furnaces, you can use more recycled or scrap steel, but ultimately, we don't have enough scrap to recycle to meet the demand for steel. So we will need to do so, su- to grow the availability of clean hydrogen, which is made from zero carbon electricity sources like solar and wind. For the last few decades, uh, electric arc furnaces that have been installed tend to have natural gas burners around their edges. That's in order to heat the metal more uniformly throughout the furnace. But they're not strictly necessary. There are, were electric arc furnaces built without without the natural gas burners. And there are other technologies that can be used uh, to heat the edges, like induction, electromagnetic induction, where similar to an induction furnace, another technology I discuss in my book. Even with the burners, it still uh, emits only about 7% as much greenhouse gases as making new primary steel in a coal-fired blast furnace. So there's uh, a large emissions reduction uh, right there, even before you switch off the uh, natural gas burners.
1: Can you tell us about innovations in Sweden and Germany that could enable steel production in a net-zero world?
2: Sweden has a, a new pioneering effort called Hybrid, where a consortium of several companies has developed technology to make new primary steel from clean hydrogen. The process is called hydrogen direct reduced iron. Reduction here means taking iron ore, which is a mineral from the ground, iron oxides, and removing the oxygen atoms, which leaves behind metallic iron. Metallic iron is the main component of steel. Steel is mostly iron with a little bit of carbon added for strength. In Germany, there are companies that are working on scaling up this technology and have announced plans to deploy and convert over some of their existing sites and facilities that may be using blast furnaces today to this hydrogen direct-reduced iron process. And that could be accompanied by efforts to expand access to clean hydrogen, Uh, for example, Germany's Clean Hydrogen Coastline Project.
1: Well, there are other approaches. Uh, I was wondering, steelmaking maybe should follow the aluminum industry to build plants near large renewable resources. Examples include the Kitimat aluminum plant, Kidamat aluminum plant in British Columbia, powered by hydroelectricity, or plants in Iceland using combined hydro and geothermal energy. Maybe Tata and other steelmakers should move to Iceland instead. Or, or would the greenhouse gases savings be lost to longer shipping routes to the manufacturers?
2: No, the, the greenhouse gas savings would not be uh, lost due to the shipping. It does make sense to potentially locate where there's an abundance of clean electricity because the electricity, clean electricity is the main thing you need to produce the uh, electrolytic or green hydrogen, uh, which is about two-thirds of the energy involved in making steel through this process. The, the remaining third is in the electric arc furnace that transforms the direct-reduced iron into steel. And that re- uses electricity as well. So all of it is based on electricity. And so it can often be difficult to build new transmission lines to bring electricity long distances due to permitting challenges. And so it can be very sensible to do what you suggested and potentially locate facilities where clean electricity Is abundant and lower cost.
1: Well, here's a problem seldom discussed. A lot of steel products were replaced with plastics. Just look around your car or your home. Almost everything we buy has some plastic in it, but plastic is made from coal, gas, or oil, and we can't cut emissions without reducing plastic production, not to mention the tidal wave of plastic particles everywhere on earth. Uh, Can we get out of this plastic trap, Jeff?
2: It's a great question, and I think there are two approaches. There's the material efficiency and circular economy, which attempts to reduce our dependence on plastics. And then there are approaches to produce the the plastic that we do need more cleanly. And they're both important. Material efficiency measures can uh, essentially say what we care about is the ultimate service or purpose that a, a good is delivering. So for plastic packaging, say, all we care about is that the product inside the packaging reaches us intact and in working order. We don't need excess packaging beyond that. There are also material substitution alternatives. For instance, you can potentially package something in a cardboard box with, you know, paper uh, filling instead of in plastic. There are opportunities there to cut plastic use that don't make the experience of using the product any worse in some cases, uh, avoiding excess material use and waste uh, can be better. That can lower our plastic demand, but we're unlikely to completely eliminate all uses of plastics. The remaining plastics that we do expect to still produce, you can make using uh, clean materials. So the materials that go into making chemicals and chemical products like plastics are called feedstocks, the coal and natural gas and petroleum that you just mentioned. But you can make the same petrochemicals out of clean materials, whether that's bioenergy or hydrogen paired with captured carbon. And this is actually one of the higher value uses of hydrogen. If you use it for steel and for plastics, these are uses where you can't directly electrify it because you need the material. Whereas if you just need heat, industrial heat, you might as well use electricity directly and not uh, waste any green hydrogen that you've, you've made. Once you've made the petrochemicals, They would no longer be petrochemicals, I suppose, if made from clean sources. Then the process of turning those into plastics remains the same as today, except you could power the heat with electricity.
1: Your new book, Zero Carbon Industry, Transformative Technologies, next tackles the most human-made material. Concrete has become something of a mania with humans. We're encasing all our rivers and our homes and everything. Who are the biggest cement makers, and is the industry a significant contributor to greenhouse gases?
2: Cement is an enormous contributor. It's one of the top three emitting industries, along with iron and steel and chemicals. And the biggest contributor is China, because they create a lot of concrete as a building material for their infrastructure, bridges, buildings, and so on. Concrete is a composite material where cement, which is a binder like glue, is mixed with crushed rocks and stone called aggregate. And it's really the cement component that has high greenhouse gas emissions because crushing rock doesn't require much energy and you can use electricity to do it. But cement, to make cement, you have to take limestone or calcium carbonate and heat it in a cement kiln, which breaks down that calcium carbonate and that process releases CO2. And that's additional to any CO2 from the fuels you burn, which is usually coal today, to heat the cement kiln. So the process of decarbonizing cement actually involves two steps or two parts. One is to use zero-carbon heat. You can use electricity to heat a, a cement kiln or a precalciner, which is the step before the materials go into the kiln and begins heating them up. And then you need a way to address the emissions from breaking down the limestone rock. There are approaches to do that. There are low-carbon cement chemistries that, and and potentially even zero-carbon magnesium-based options that don't emit CO2 when broken down. You could use carbon capture to capture the CO2 emitted from the limestone and store it underground. And, of course, there are efficiency measures you can use less cement, uh, either by using fillers or being more judicious in how you place concrete. For example, you can use curved fabric molds to place concrete only where you need it for structural integrity and avoid uh, wasting excess concrete.
1: But then, strangely, and I did not know this, aging cement begins to absorb carbon dioxide from the air, becoming helpful to slow climate change. Is carbon absorption by concrete significant, and is it enough to compensate for all the emissions from making cement?
2: Carbon absorption by cement in concrete, once it's in service in a building, is very significant on a global scale. I believe it offset uh, 1 or 2 percent of global CO2 emissions uh, in recent years, uh, which is huge. But it is not enough to offset the emissions from making the cement. When the cement is put into service uh, and hardens and and then it slowly absorbs CO2, it will eventually absorb about half, half as much CO2 as it emitted from its process emissions, meaning from the breakdown of limestone. So even if you used electricity to heat the cement kiln, if you didn't do anything about the CO2 from limestone, it would still emit twice as much CO2 as it ultimately absorbs. But if you could capture that CO2, suppose you used electrical heating for the cement kiln and then you captured the limestone CO2 and stored it, then the cement would go on to sequester CO2 from the atmosphere about half as much as it emitted. But since what it emitted was stored underground, it could be a a way to reduce atmospheric CO2 concentrations.
1: Well, you mentioned carbon capture, and it's very controversial because, well, in all its scenarios, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change depends entirely on massive recapture of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. We might go above two degrees uh, global warming average, but then bring it back down with carbon capture. Earlier attempts at this uh, were tiny, and they've been abandoned, some of them. Climate scientists like Kevin Anderson call it a unicorn, basically a fairy tale leading us to burn more fossil fuels. Jeff, you write with some pretty hard-eyed optimism in technology. Do you really believe carbon capture in a big scale will happen, enough to claw back the temperatures we need?
2: So there are two approaches to carbon capture. There's direct air capture, which is what you're talking about, reduce taking carbon out of the atmosphere. And then there's capture at an industrial facility from a, a, a smokestack or from a cement kiln. I do not think we should be relying on direct air capture. I think it's very expensive and very energy-intensive because CO2 is at a low concentration in the atmosphere relative to other components like nitrogen and oxygen. So it requires a lot of energy, and it's much more technologically feasible and cost-effective to avoid having those emissions enter the atmosphere in the first place. So I don't, I am not a fan of the direct air capture form of carbon capture. For the type that's done in an industrial facility, I think there are limited cases where it can make sense. Cement making is one of them because the emissions from limestone breakdown are not from fossil fuels. So even if we displaced the fossil fuels, we still would have some CO2 from this, from this calcium carbonate rock. And there are limited ways to address it without carbon capture. You can reduce the use of cement. You can, uh, some of these new chemistries can reduce the amount of CO2 per unit of cement. It's hard to get rid of it entirely without some carbon capture in cement kilns. This is a fairly narrow niche though, and I would caution against, uh, overuse of carbon capture when more effective tools are available. One thing to keep in mind is that If you're trying to burn fossil fuels and use carbon capture, even if the carbon capture works, you still have emissions from the upstream production and processing of the fossil fuels, such as the drilling for oil and gas and natural gas processing or oil refining. So the carbon capture at the facility isn't addressing upstream emissions like that. In the case for fossil fuels, there may be some narrow niches for it, but I, um, its best fit is with cement kilns, and limestone.
1: My reading of your book suggests profit-oriented industry alone cannot solve the climate crisis. We need major policy changes by governments with public support and participation. In the 1990s, the big answer was cap-and-trade, a kind of inter-industry carbon emissions trading system overseen by governments. These schemes had pretty limited success. So what do you think?
2: I think policy is extremely important, as as you suggested, for um, achieving a clean industrial future. And no single policy is a silver bullet. So I think that cap-and-trade has its place. It's a form of carbon pricing, carbon tax being the other. And there are numerous jurisdictions around the world today that use cap-and-trade and use carbon pricing as a policy tool. Europe has the European Emissions Trading System, California has a cap-and-trade system, uh, there's the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative in the eastern U.S. Uh, and elsewhere. The, the right policy depends on the maturity of the technology. Cap-and-trade and carbon pricing in general is best for when a clean alternative is fairly well-developed and so... The price incentive is enough to switch the choice. You know, an, an industrial facility manager will choose to use the clean technology instead of the dirty technology in order to avoid paying that uh, carbon price. At an earlier technological stage, if the clean option isn't readily available, then their only option is to pay the carbon price and to continue to emit carbon, which is not ultimately the goal. The goal is to stop the emissions, not to have them pay the uh, fee. So I think it's a very useful policy in some situations and has been used successfully, but is not the only policy we need, not nearly.
1: Jeff, talk to us about green banks and why we need them.
2: Green banks are a a great example of another important and useful uh, approach to helping scale up clean industry. A green bank is an organization often affiliated with a government or first uh, funded by a government, though it may become independent or be quasi-independent. They have a, a pool of money, and they use it to try to leverage, to, to try to make financing available to industries that want to implement clean processes and clean equipment. So there's some upfront cost to buying new equipment and installing it, and it may be difficult, especially for an industry that's trying a new, clean approach, to get affordable financing in the, in the private market. So a green bank can use a number of tools to help make this financing more available. They can partner with a private lender and, co- in a, and each lend some money called co-lending. They could use loan loss reserves or loan guarantees, which says to the private lender, you lend the money. If they don't pay it back, we'll cover some or all of the loss. And that lessens the risk for the private lenders, so they're willing to offer a low interest rate on the, on the loan. Or they can issue bonds. So because they are often affiliated with governments, they can, they can issue government bonds, which may have special tax treatment. They may be tax exempt from certain types of income tax and use these bonds to help fund clean industry. Essentially, they're a, an organization that uses this range of tools to make cheap financing available for clean industry.
1: Can governments lead the way with their own purchasing? and Tell us how the Netherlands approached green public procurement.
2: Governments absolutely can lead the way. Governments are major buyers of industrial products like steel and cement in concrete because They fund uh, infrastructure like roads and bridges and public buildings like public offices and schools. And government can decide what they want to purchase with their own money. So one uh, approach is to leverage this ability of government to decide what to purchase and set aside a share of the government budget for zero-carbon or low-carbon industrial products, especially construction materials like steel and cement. So the government might say, Five percent initially of our steel has to be primary steel from a new hydrogen-based or other zero-carbon process, and then a steelmaker will see that there is a guaranteed market if they if they install a new hydrogen direct-reduced iron furn, uh, furnace system, they will have a buyer for that steel, um, and government can can promise that for the next twenty years or whatever they will buy at least so much and that gives them the, the, the steelmaker the confidence they need to invest in the new clean technology. As they invest and scale it up, the price will come down, and availability can go up, and then government can ratchet up its purchases. Maybe then, you know, several years later, they'll be buying 10% of their steel as clean steel, and then 20%, and as prices go down, it will enter the, the private market, and private buyers who want clean steel say, an automaker who wants to, to make clean vehicles will start purchasing it. So it's a way to, to create a starter market that helps this technology scale and, um, and achieve these cost benefits. You mentioned the Netherlands. They're a country with a strong uh, public procurement process, including support and tools. I believe they even have software that helps uh, companies assess the carbon, the life cycle carbon emissions from their products and understand how the government is measuring it so that they can improve their processes in ways that lower life-cycle carbon emissions and help them qualify to be uh, purchased by government agencies.
1: Well, speaking of software, uh, Jeffrey Reisman, you also created a tool called the Energy Policy Simulator. What does it do, and are people using it?
2: So before writing this book, I created a piece of open-source free software the Energy Policy Simulator. It's a computer model that lets you or anyone uh, be the role of a policymaker. So it has dozens, um, more than a hundred different policy levers that you can set across every part of the economy. That could be carbon pricing, it can be efficiency standards, it can be all the things we've been talking about and more and not just industry, when I say across the economy, I mean in the transport sector, in buildings, uh, in electric power generation, so it has things like a renewable portfolio standard for power plants. And then it will calculate what these policies will do and give outputs that are useful to policymakers. How much will it cut emissions? How many jobs will the investment create? And, and contri- how will it contribute to the economy? How many lives will it save? because of reduced conventional pollutant emissions um, because it also tracks emissions not just of greenhouse gases but of particulates and other pollutants that cause heart attacks and lung disease, so it can estimate reductions in deaths from those pollutants. It's available for anyone to use at energypolicy.solutions online. And it's been used in a growing number of countries and, uh, subnational regions like U.S. states or Canadian provinces to help policymakers understand what policy would really move the needle, what would do, what would cut emissions and and achieve their goals, and what would the co-benefits be in terms of public health and jobs and so on.
1: One thing I would like to see in your book is a little bit more urgency, maybe rating these tools for the time that it takes to implement them. I mean, if if we're building towards net zero for 2045 uh, or 2050, that may be too late if we pass certain tipping points by 2030 on our current rate. So are, are you thinking about tools that can work fast so that we don't get Miami and New York flooded?
2: It is important to address the climate crisis uh, quickly because it is urgent. Fortunately, there are some technologies that are commercialized and ready to go and could be deployed today if we get yep, the right, right. In, in, incentives in place. A good example would be industrial heat pumps. They're similar to an air conditioner or a refrigerator or even a heat pump you might have in your home that moves heat from one place to another using electricity, and it can be for clean electricity. This technology exists. There are companies that make and sell industrial heat pumps today, and there is no more efficient way to create industrial heat up to about 165 degrees Celsius, which is enough to meet about a third of industrial heat demand. So policies that could get these deployed today are important. These could include incentives, financial incentives. They could include um, electricity rates that are amenable to industrial electrification, and the green banks that we discussed before, as well as potentially energy efficiency standards, since heat pumps are so efficient that as long as your standard is written to be technology neutral, fuel neutral, electric technologies in general, and heat pumps in particular, will be one of the easiest ways to comply.
1: Well, your work reminds me of Professor Mark Jacobson of MIT. Jacobson joins a chorus of experts and CEOs who say, we have the technology for a low-carbon civilization if we can find the will to do it. Your book title promises us sustainable prosperity. Given all the challenges, not just climate, but wars and pandemic and AI and crime, I'm doubtful. Jeffrey, where does your optimism come from?
2: I don't want to minimize any of these challenges you've mentioned, and uh, none of this will happen on its own. It requires dedicated people who care about transitioning to a clean energy future, who care about the future of the climate and human society and ecosystems and and the rest that benefit from a livable climate. That includes the policy makers that are needed to enact policies to get these technologies in place. It includes the scientists and engineers who are developing them and driving down costs. It includes journalists and radio hosts uh, like yourself who are helping to get the word out about how urgent and important all of this is. There is an optimism that I have, which is that I see people are working on it from all of these angles. And I believe that it is possible... Um, it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. And I would encourage listeners to think about how they can, do, can contribute, whether that is going into one of these fields, becoming an engineer working on solar or wind or clean industrial equipment or a journalist or the like, or move, trying to move the needle on policy, because it will be a large group effort to get this done. But I do believe it's possible.
1: From Energy Innovation, we have been speaking with Senior Director for Industry, Jeffrey Reisman. His new book coming out in February is Zero Carbon Industry, Transformative Technologies and Policies to Achieve Sustainable Prosperity. You can download this interview or pass it on with links in my show blog, published Wednesdays at ecoshock.org. Jeff, thank you for digging into all this and telling us about it.
2: Thank you, Alex. I really appreciate the chance to share.
1: I'm Alex Smith for Radio EcoShock. Last week, we discovered even more climate-wrecking emissions as methane, the so-called natural gas. Well, its burning hit absolute record highs. U.S. fracking production is overflowing into multiple giant liquefied natural gas ports, and they're in Canada, the United States, and Mexico. Their plans and investments stretch decades into our damaged future. Then I warned, don't forget about oil. Everything runs on oil and oil byproducts, from transportation through trillions of tons of plastics, cosmetics, clothes, everything. According to the International Energy Agency, total world demand for oil rose 2.3 million barrels a day, every single day. They project global demand for oil by 2050 to be a third higher than that. Who are the oil giants poisoning the atmosphere? You want to say Saudi Arabia, but they are only the third largest oil producer. Russia is number two. America is the single largest producer of oil, the pollution from burning it, the leftover toxins, the end of the climate we evolved in. America is number one. This oil and gas energy boom sounds great for everyone. I hope this year's heat and wild weather swings don't kill off my fruit trees. With hardly any snow this mild winter, we expect a hot, dry summer, maybe another record year for wildfires here in the West. I hope our house doesn't burn down. I hope the bees and the bugs can make it for another year. I hope humans come to their senses and end this fossil fuel bitter end party. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening and caring about our world.